this is, you know, um, this is this is it. <laughs> this is it. Um, yeah, I have sat with it. It's, um, it's, you know, it's beautiful. You want to sit with it. Um, and it's, um, it's kind of alive. It's, um, you'll find if you ask the right questions, most people will say, um, she is something and it's always a she so, so far, (laughs) so far. You've just been listening to the voice of Amanda Gibson. Hello and welcome to the Cinema Australia podcast. My name is Matthew Eels. On Black Saturday, 7th of February 2009, townships northeast of Melbourne were engulfed by firestorms. Considered our worst ever natural disaster, these fires resulted in the highest loss of life peacetime Australia has ever known. After the horror of immediate losses, people embarked on various journeys of repair and recovery. The blacksmith's tree was one of them. Designer and metal artist Amanda Gibson gathered a team of seasoned blacksmiths from around the world to create a life-size stainless steel and copper gum tree. This happened within a community traumatised by the Black Saturday fires. The blacksmith's tree would not be without its challenges, but what it became for the people involved is something no one could have imagined. The blacksmith's tree was an instinctive response to the devastating effects of loss and the inspired flourishing of life that followed. In this episode of the Cinema Australia podcast, I'm speaking with filmmaker Andrew Garton, whose new film, Forged from Fire, charts the valleys and peaks of this heartwarming project. It documents the remarkable social history of a tragic but important moment for Australia and its people. Forged from Fire will be screening at the upcoming Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. Uh, Tickets are on sale now and you can head over to cinemaaustralia.com.au to find out more. Anyway, enjoy. He does have a conscience in some way, but he's kind of like a uh, just a, a madman who can out-drink, out-last, out-fun everyone all the time. Luke's interpretation of that was uh, probably more extreme than what I had written on the page or envisaged myself. The day that we were going out to shoot the open water scenes, we were told that there were some dead whale carcasses that were bringing in real tiger sharks and great white sharks, and they'd been sighted in the area. We were told not to go in the water. But I could just see instantly that how talented Rhiannon was, and there was just, it really blew me away. There is still a bit of a, a boys club out there for sure. And also with Dee Wallace, she gave me great input on the script for this to make her have a very pro-choice stance throughout the film. And the simple fact is, the movie, the whole thing occurs because a right-wing guy blows up a clinic. Very organically, somehow, the name The Comet Kids popped up, and we sort of just kind of based the movie around that name. Like, it happened really quickly. We kind of thought, like, that's a really great name for a movie. Like, what is, what, who are The Comet Kids? We just thought it was very, very important to uh, start writing more roles for women, and uh, women not just, as I said, as girlfriends, mothers, and people in love, but 
women who are their own people as we are. Andrew Garten, uh, thank you very much for joining the Cinema Australia podcast. It's great to be speaking with you. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Uh, Congratulations on this film. Uh, You must be excited to share it with a wide audience at the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival later in the month. Very much so. And sharing is, it's a, it's a, I'm glad you use that word because it's a, it's a very, very important part of, uh, of, of my filmmaking process. There's nothing better than to actually, I mean, you make films because you want people to see them, but to actually share the experience in a theatre is just magnificent. You know, people often ask me, you know, why aren't we seeing this on television? And my general response is because because I actually prefer to sit here and watch it with you, and experience the um, experience the film, and then being and, and then have have an opportunity to talk about it and people's impressions and experiences um, afterwards. Mm. So we have this sort of sense of a of a shared experience, but also a way of of of, of collectively you know growing from that experience, which generally may not necessarily happen if you're sitting in front of a television screen by yourself. Mm. And what an experience it is. Um, you've been involved with video production throughout your entire career as a producer, editor, writer, director, and even as a composer. Uh, can you take us back to the beginning of your career and tell us about how you uh, became involved in this line of work? Uh, well, yeah, it, it sort of um, began. Uh, it sort of began with my father, who. Uh, who was a uh, an amateur photographer and happened to um, have a sort of portable darkroom and once every couple of months the darkroom materials equipment would be set up in the in the dining room and uh, and I'd ha- you know have this great experience of, of spending time with him threading. 35 mil rolls of film into a developing tank under the blankets in the bedroom. We we lived in this small kind of three-room shack, if you like. And uh, so all the space was, was used uh, quite, um, quite uh, efficiently. So um, the bedroom became part of the darkroom and the bathroom was where the, uh, the films would, would, would dry and where we would dry the, uh, the, um, uh, the finished um, uh, photographs. And eventually, he um, he gave me a, a eight mil camera, and uh, and I started kind of scooting about with that. And uh, um, and uh, fortunately, I also went to a, a school, a high school, that had the first video equipment, sort of portable video equipment in New South Wales. And so I was immediately attracted to to using this gear, and then suddenly. The western suburbs opened. Western suburbs of Sydney opened up with these video access centres, which were funded by Whitlam's government at that that time. And all these kids, like myself, who weren't interested in sport, weren't interested in knocking about and kind of kicking other kids around, um, had a place to go. Uh, you know, there was a community radio station being set up. There were these. Uh, uh, you know, there was a there was a whole post production studio set up. There were pneumatics and and reel to reel tape uh, video recorders, and it was an amazing space. And we all learnt and taught each other how to use this this gear, and it's kind of went on from there until sort of the late seventies when I discovered that I you know also had this massive love for music. Mm. 
and then uh, then started playing music. Um, but in the in the mid eighties, uh, I was writing a lot and started working with a um, a Sydney director, documentary director who was. Um, a guy by the name of Julian Russell who was making a series of films at that stage called um, Anyone Can Be a Genius. And so I was focusing on people who were doing extraordinary things around the world and and uh, myself and a colleague uh, started writing music for this series. And the series started winning awards and, uh, you know, just sort of grew from there. But the experience of actually being in, in post-production gave me this sort of fabulous love for watching um, films grow and stories being told um, in the cutting room. One of your uh, most recent documentaries uh, prior to Forged from Fire was uh, Ocean in a Drop. Uh, can you tell us about that one? Yeah, so Ocean in a Drop is interesting because it sort of fuses all these different experiences of, of, um, of my of my life or, or career, as, as, he, as he mentioned, where um, – uh, I was interested in in the impact that that a single computer would have in a remote community in in India, and there was an organisation that was interested in in supporting uh, a film about some of the work being done in rural and tribal communities in terms of providing access to um, extensive kind of wireless internet or, or um, wireless broadband, and so I took a, a crew in. Um, an Australian DAP director of photography and a um, and an Indian crew which we mentored uh, and went out to some of the most remote communities in the north northeast the places where a lot of um, Indians themselves in, in the urban centres had never been to I mean we went to this one place uh, that had seen their first automobile in 2009 so it was it was still very very you know ancient in in, in ways and um yeah so i made this film about the impact the, the internet was having on these on these communities primarily from a, a women a woman's and a child's perspective um because these are the people that were being uh, affected the most and it was generally a positive story mm. it was actually quite amazing to see that uh, people were able to make use of um, government information that's made available only on the web. So you'd enter these communities and you'd find a whole bunch of people that weren't even aware that the internet existed, certainly weren't aware that the government was making services available for them, but weren't even aware that they were el- eligible for things like pensions or um, the equivalent of um, social security or young you know, girls weren't even aware that the government was sponsoring push bikes so that they could get to schools wow. Uh, wow. relatively safely. So all of, this, all of this information is available on the web mm. and there was a, you know, groups of young people um, in their in their teens, who are rolling out these uh, these services to provide access to, to this kind of information, piggybacking on on uh, these broadband wireless networks that w- that were being set up by foundations and NGOs, and just taking a single community into sort of single computer into this remote community, and suddenly they had access to all of this information, and 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 that meant that people had access to money, they had income for the first time in their in, in their lives, you know, a reliable income. Um, supported by um, the government, and uh, and it was a really really fascinating story. I mean, every there was so many um, so many different ways the the internet was impacting on on people, whether they were people uh, 
uh, in sort of weaver-based artisan kind of communities or whether they were some of these really, really poor, um, low-caste uh, communities that um, had access to extremely little uh, in terms of resources, but they had incredible capacities for incredible capacity for memory and, and, and language. These were communities that hadn't forgotten how to remember. Mm. You know, so they were, they were amazing storytellers and uh, incredible musicians, and uh, but didn't have access to the kind of information that, that meant that that they could be resourced in ways that their government was um, providing. Wow, wow. Um, so in 2009, uh, you returned to Australia from Europe uh, to commence an artist residency in Victoria. And um, the day after you arrived in Victoria, the devastating Black Saturday fires began. Uh, what do you remember from that day and, and what are some of the lasting impacts that that time has had on you? Yeah, well, um where I had been, um, it, it, yeah, I'd, I'd left um, Europe. It was sort of minus minus three, and arrived in Australia, and it was hitting um, you know the early to mid mid forties. Wow! And I remember staying the night at a friend's place and watching these plumes of of, of, of smoke rising up over um, Melbourne's northeast, mm. and listening to the radio and just this this sort of travesty on on, on unfolding live and uh, knowing that this was the area that that I was supposed to move to the day after <laughs> and um, uh, I knew a handful of people up there um, so a few days later uh, I drove out there to see how people were going and it was just uh, the most somber um, experience, um, and uh, as, as, a, as, a, as a consequence, decided that it wasn't the right time for for, for me to be moving out up there. Um, any rental places, and particularly the space where I was going to be doing the residency, any empty accommodation was being made available for people who'd lost their property. Yeah, and uh, so you know, I didn't move up there till. Uh, Later in the year, but I distinctly remember the, um, uh, you know, the the. I mean, you could stare at the sun because the the air was still so thick with with, with smoke, and uh, and the entire um, escarpment was still and silent, and um, and people had were so impacted in such a such a pace and at, at, this, at that time you know this is only three days later and still didn't know um, about you know the the um, uh, about the number of people who may have survived so it was it was a, it was an extremely tragic time because I mean Australians don't experience this kind of tragedy mm. you know we, we don't experience we, you know war War and devastation on our in our country in the way that um, bushfires can affect us, mm. and certainly you know we were we knew that that many people had lost their lives, but we certainly weren't aware that that 173 had, mm. and then and then the many more who died in hospitals, uh, and the many more afterwards who um, 
who have died since. Um, I mean, the suicide rate was also something that was quite quite high. Um, but yeah, so so it was a look. It was a really really tragic and very difficult time. Um, and uh, when I got up there, there wasn't a lot that uh, that a filmmaker could do at that at that at that time. Yeah. But I got to know that there was a thing called the Tree Project that had that had had begun um, almost within days of the of the bushfires, and um, and gradually became aware of just the kind of impact that the Tree Tree Project was happening on people, mm. and and that was extraordinary because it suddenly gave people something to hang on to, something tangible mm. that was growing um, uh, in a in the midst of, of, of such tragedy and in the midst of such uh, uh, um, grave um, you know, consequences of, of, uh, of the fires. Did you learn about the uh, Blacksmiths Tree Project through Amanda Gibson uh, or, or was it through someone else? Uh, initially, initially through, um, I mean, I knew it was there because you could, there were, um, announcements that were coming across, you know, uh, you know, websites and there were, you know, there were posters around and then, and then Amanda moved into the residency. So this residency space is the only long-term residency space in Australia. So when you, when you sign up and you, you get approved, you can stay from between six months to two years. Mm. And I was there for my first year. And uh, Amanda Gibson arrived, and um, so so suddenly the tree project was, was something that was being discussed at Dunmuchen, this residency space, almost every day. And uh, I realised that it, that um, that it wasn't being documented. The process of of, of the making of the, the tree wasn't being documented in a consistent way. Though there were people who were filming um, various different parts of the project. Um, but it wasn't coordinated or organised in any sort of way. Mm. And um, eventually um, I asked if um, if they needed or if they were you know, happy for me to sort of turn up occasionally with the camera. Mm. And, uh, um, yeah, and that turned out really, really well. But anyway, yeah, so, so I got to meet Amanda and um, – and asked if if uh, she wouldn't mind if I sort of turned up with a camera every so often, and uh, she was really happy about that idea. And then and then suddenly um, people started turning up with with with, with footage, and uh, a shoebox arrived filled with with HDV tapes that um, that a couple of people had um, had filmed of the early stages of the project because that's the thing that was missing. Like suddenly I had wow, you know, the from the first or second. Um, community events. I mean, there weren't so much events. There were stalls and at markets where forges were set up and and uh, blacksmiths were just belting out um, uh, leaves, um, copper leaves. Where Most people of that would, footage uh, was uh, filmed by Warwick Page, right? Was that Warwick? That's footage? correct. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's Warwick's Warwick footage. Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, and that was really cool. You know, they. They, they they had this footage. They didn't they didn't know what to do with it. Um, so he was uh, never planning to make a documentary at the time. He was planning to make he was planning to make uh, a documentary quite different to um, to what to what I ended up doing. He wanted to do something that um, that looked at uh, the tree within 
the sort of genre of landscape art in Australia. Oh, right. And uh, and and it was quite different to the way that um, that the blacksmiths themselves and Amanda, as the designer, saw the tree. You know that this wasn't a, a, a sort of uh, fine art project. This was a community project, and this was a community-led project. So at every stage of the project, people would come in, uh, irrespective of who they were or, or what part of the community they represented. Everyone had, uh, for want of a better term, buy-in. They had some say in the process. You're listening to the Cinema Australia podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at cinemaaustralia.com.au. So tell us about the uh, the Blacksmith Tree Project itself, and uh, for people who have no idea, haven't seen the trailer to the film, uh, live in other states, uh, tell us about the actual tree itself, because it's, it's quite phenomenal. So the tree is a life-size stainless steel and copper gum tree. It's, uh, it's 10 metres tall. It weighs just over three tonnes. Its canopy is comprised of over 3,500 individual leaves. The trunk is a single stainless steel taper um, of a kind that had never been manufactured before. I mean, it's a single stainless steel taper that, that was um, forged um, out of a uh, foot and a half um, block of stainless steel into a two and a half meter tall, or um, no, sorry, not two and a half meter tall, into an uh, eight meter tall um, taper, and it had to be strong enough to to hold the canopy, which is comprised of stainless steel branches and three and a half thousand copper leaves. Each of the leaves are stamped, stamped with with names or uh, poems um, and dedications and affirmations from people who were affected by the fire. So there's a whole branch that's dedicated to school children that are comprised of um, words from a poem that w- was written by kids from a number of high schools in the area who were um, affected by the fires. There's a lot of symbolism involved in the, the tree. The base of the, the, the tree has a poem stamped into it. It'll never be seen again unless it collapses for one whatever reason. Um, what was and, the idea of putting that poem on the bottom? Because I did notice that. Yeah. It's it's just that the um, – it's just that the, 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 it's <laughs> – how can I describe it? It's myth-making. Yeah. It's like, it's like myths are being made. Mm. Um, and stories, as, as uh, Shane Pugh, one of the, the volunteers in the project, uh, was, was saying, you know, that uh, there'll come a time in 100 years' time that there'll be this myth of the mandarin and, and, and the blacksmiths who, who, who created this tree. Yeah. And there'll be stories about the poem on the base. And there'll be stories <laughs> about, you know, there's a, there's a calm wooden box that was buried with the tree that contains the hopes and aspirations of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of children mm-hmm. in the area that were written on paper leaves and um, like a time capsule. Yeah. And uh, uh, just the fact that people... Some people will know that it's there. It was really, really important for for, for them, mm. um, knowing that that these elements are there. Knowing that the, the the words are in the canopy but can't be seen anymore because of the height. I mean, you you 
you'd need to get into the canopy with uh, with a crane to to really get a close look at what's what's written up there. Wow. Uh, so, what's um, the most uh, interesting leaf in your opinion? What what one really uh, stuck out to you? Um. Oh, there's one. Uh, there's one that uh, is a dedication to all of the uh, all of the kangaroos and wombats that perished oh. in the um, in the fires that that a, that a child had come up with. I can't quite remember the the, the, the phrase at the moment. But also, I mean, the, the most poignant one is, is is referred to in the film, where um, uh, the words I. Uh, I was the walrus. Mm. Was stamped in there, mm. and uh, and this was a dedication to uh, um, a boy um, who perished in a fire, and he was he was nicknamed the walrus wow. at school. And his best friend um, had a leaf, you know, donated. Um, uh, the donations were I think fifteen or twenty five dollars per leaf, mm. and uh, he'd collected twenty five dollars, gave them to the blacksmiths. And and um, and had uh, um, you were the walrus stamped on it for 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 his friend, and then they um, uh, and, if, and to have that actually in in the film, um, the mum, his mum, and uh, her son were present in the audience at the launch launch of the film at uh, on the eighth of Feb, and that was such a great moment for them. That was such a really really they just they 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 didn't even expect to be in the film but to actually see the leaf in the film as well was just really really valuable some of these stories has come out of the screenings and that's why you know going back to the first thing you were saying when you were saying you know sharing this sharing this at, at the melbourne documentary film festival sharing the experience of the film within community is really really important um, because it because it, it creates this safe space, and somehow the film has this evocative capacity in people where people just talk about these experiences, whether it's the Black Saturday fires or other um, uh, events in their lives that have had a significant impact. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious to know if the leaves are documented, uh, you know, where and who they're from, and and what each leaf has written on it. Is is that documented anywhere? Yes, yes, it is actually. Fantastic. Um, Amanda, Amanda Gibson is an incredibly detailed um, archivist, and, and I mean, every leaf was photographed. So oh. every person who who sponsored a leaf, um, were, were uh, received a photograph of the finished leaf mm. um, by email. That leaf uh, was also given a, a code. And that code is represented in the position of the leaf on the tree. On the tree, in fact, you could go to the to the site of the tree with Amanda and ask her about a specific leaf, and she will know where it is oh, wow. exactly which one. So she knows she's the only person on the tree project that can pinpoint exactly you know which leaf. So you know, I I can't I can't tell. You know, I got a leaf for myself from my daughter. And, um, and, you know, once I was out there, I said, oh, I wonder where mine is. And she said, oh, it's actually that one just there. <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh, that's said, yeah, yeah, it's there. It's there. And, and, of course, you know, suddenly you, you remember the, the contour of the branch and you go, yeah, right. 
So do, 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 what about the rest? She said, yeah, I know where they all are. <laughs> Um, because they were, she designed, she 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 designed every aspect of it. You know, she was involved in every aspect to make sure that the that the leaves looked like they were, um, you know, uh, looked like they were lilting off a branch. Mm. So, I mean, that was one of the interesting aspects of working with um, or training up the, the 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 women who became part of. Uh, as they call Amanda's um, chicks crew, they call themselves who were the uh, the women's welding group. Um, they had a much more organic process to the way that they were welding the leaves to the branches. Yeah. So um, one day, um, Doug, who was one of the lead uh, blacksmiths, walked into the factory and noticed that all of his leaves had been curled, and he started hammering them out. You know, was flattening them on the on the uh, flattening them out, and Amanda walked in and said, "What are you doing?" He said, "Someone curled my leaves. I'm flattening them out." And she said, "No, <gasps> no, <laughs> they're curled to look like eucalyptus, eucalyptus <laughs> leaves." You know? Wow. wow. Said, oh, no. oh, but they were forged flat. Yes, they're forged flat. So we stamped the names on it, and then we curled them. Yeah. And uh, and he went, "Oh, right, okay." And then when the when the blacksmiths and uh, male welders were welding the leaves to the branches. They were welding them in in this sort of zigzag pattern. So I go zag, you know, cross, 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 cross. You know, like a a, a a fairly numeric sort of pattern. So you could see that they were like um, two and a half centimeters apart um, and spiraled in this in this almost sort of Christmas tree like spiral around a branch. And uh, she, and Amanda, turned up and said. What are you doing here? He said, Oh, no, we're welding the leaves to the branches. He said, This isn't a Christmas tree, it's a eucalyptus tree. Wow. You know, <laughs> leaves leaves look a lot more organic. And when the when the women welders went to work on the um, on the individual leaves and the branches, suddenly this sort of more organic um, appearance of the tree started to take shape. Wow. And then the uh, the blokes sort of turned up and went, Oh wow, right, we get it. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> don't 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 let us don't leave us alone with the tree. Otherwise, it'll you know it'll start looking like you know like a like an Escher you know kind of piece or something. It was just a bit too. Their idea was it just all had to be uniform. And then suddenly, I mean, this is this is one of the sort of great things about about being there every single day was watching this stuff emerge. And I've got a lot of. I mean, there's so much footage um, of a lot of this sort of interplay. And, um, you know, but, um, you know, you can't tell every, every, every individual story in, in, a, in an hour, but, uh, but people can talk about this sort of, that sort of impact. So working together in that, that way, uh, the, the, the blokes uh, really softened their approach and, and also because they had this extraordinary impact with the community they were dealing with really, really emotional people, which which they hadn't dealt before. You know, they're usually making gates or or um, hammers or tools or you know, doing extraordinary or, or ornate work that has a function, but creating something that had an emotional response in people was something entirely unique for them, mm-hmm. and uh, and that was a really important breakthrough. And, and all everyone grew in the project. Everyone grew, and um, it, and. A lot of them are still working together. You know, they they um, they found a, a, a sort of camaraderie 
um, with with Amanda that um, that has grown into a number of other projects that that has now seen them create um, you know, public works of art that that integrate with, with within community in in ways that um, say so, you know sort of a, a government consultative based approach um, or through local government. Uh, wouldn't wouldn't create the sort of results that that, that they're producing now, and mm-hmm. certain certain the, the tree wouldn't have wouldn't wouldn't be what it is if it if it had a whole range of consultants and. Uh, Was there any uh, government uh, government um, um, involvement in the project? Not really. I mean, there was there was some there was some government funding, but in fact, the the tree project fed into um, government processes. So. There, there are ongoing research projects looking at uh, uh, at the way these kind of projects have created um, uh, mod- modalities of, of, of healing within, within the community. So uh, government uh, bodies and university researchers and community health practitioners have been researching the TREE project specifically for, you know, how did they do this and how can this be replicated? And our view is that, that you can't replicate this kind of model, you know, because the res- the way that you do this is different for every situation. But the bottom line is you need to be able to listen to people and you need to be able to, to be ready to have people who represent all facets of the community uh, have some kind of engagement with 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 the process, mm. and and be prepared to allow it to to grow and and evolve as a consequence of that. Uh, and it takes time. You know, that's why the tree took nearly ten years to complete. Um, that's why the film took nearly ten years to complete. <laughs> um, I mean, how did you feel the first time you saw the tree uh, once it had been fully installed? Well, it was it was a remarkable experience. You know, having sort of uh, filming the entire process of, of, of it being fabricated and then put together in the factory and then taken out to the location where it was um, placed upright and then stepping back and realising it blended into the canopy. Uh, I mean, what was amazing for everyone was once it was installed, that day we all stepped back and uh, there was a, in, in the community centre nearby to have some sandwiches and uh, cups of tea, and um, and we realised that the tree was the same size as the um, as the trees that were planted, the seedlings that were planted after the Black Saturday fires. Oh wow! So, you know, and this was um, uh, what was it? I think it was twenty. Um, uh, early 2014, February 2014, when the tree was installed. And, uh, yeah, so it blended into the um, in, into the canopy and that hadn't been planned. So, the, so it was the same height as, as, as those, as those initial seedlings, you know, that was, that was an extraordinary experience. That's amazing. Wow. We're all, we're all sort of, Literally, the gob was 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 smacked. <laughs> there's a scene in the film where where the choir's singing, uh, and there's a there's some great shots of the tree at night with the stars as a backdrop. Uh, as a viewer, it felt like a very uh, spiritual experience. Uh, would you describe it as that? 
Yeah, so um, in uh, 2017, uh, I put together this choir to sing at the base of the tree. Uh, it was the only um, only scene that was sort of constructed. I wanted to find a way to, to sort of complete the film with uh, with with members of the community. So we, we sort of put a put a call out, and uh, you didn't have to be a singer. You just you just needed to turn up for a couple of rehearsals and uh, and be willing to be part of uh, that scene in the film. It turned out that almost every single person who sang at the base of the tree at that day had survived the fires oh, wow. in one way or another. Mm. You know, had experienced loss. There were women there that were that had lost their entire families. And I wasn't aware of that. I wasn't aware that we'd put together a, a choir of fire survivors. Oh. You know, and that's that's the that you know with these things you don't plan. You know, on the entire process of the of, of the making of the tree, um, and what's happened since has um, has just been remarkable. So for the people who sang that amazing song at the base of the tree that I spoke to afterwards, um, mostly off camera, uh, amazing stories. It was like, oh, my goodness, this is, the, this is the sort of thing that you really want to capture. But at the same time, you don't or you know, sometimes you've got to put the camera down and people yes. just want to share stories and, and, and trust that, that you're there listening to them and not just filming every, every, every snippet. But these women come up to me and said, Thank you, Andrew, for making this 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 um, this event happen today because it was the first time we've been back in the area. Oh wow! It's a, we haven't seen the tree until it was finished until today. You know, we knew it was finished, and we knew we, we were joining the choir, but we knew that we were going to come back to this area that we'd left since the fires. Mm. So these are people that hadn't been back since two thousand and nine. And that day in October was the first time that some of those people had been back. Wow. And they said, now now we can move on. You know, we had our place was just a few kilometres up the road, totally destroyed. Um, you know, lost my, lost my family. Um, so the film uh, will be showing at the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival uh, this month. When are, when are a wider audience going to be able to see the film? Okay, so there was a... Um, uh, once the once the screening uh, is, um, oh, it's a Melbourne Documentary Film Festival screening is, is done. Um, there's a there's a rollout of the film planned through uh, community centres, libraries, film societies um, across uh, the, the east coast, and then out um, through to the to the west. And so at this moment, it's 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 not a planned or scheduled. Uh, a series of screenings. I'm just rolling out invitations for people to um, to book the film for for these um, community based screenings. Yeah. I just wanted to to have the um, the festival, um, you know, give give the festival the uh, the the um, uh, the respect for for hosting the film uh, at at this at this really important time. There's some really really amazing films and and, and incredible filmmakers being represented at this festival. And, and it's such a great opportunity. So we want to be able to use this as, also as a, as a sort of platform to, to, uh, to create um, these um, screening experiences 
uh, post post the festival, and also sort of the ma- maximise the festival's capacity for um, um, promoting all of the films that they that they're hosting. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you've created something very special here, Andrew. Uh, congratulations on uh, Forge from Fire. Thank you very much. And look, uh, I, I really, really value your, your interest in, in the film, and I really enjoy talking about it. Thank you for listening to the Cinema Australia podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast on both iTunes and SoundCloud. For all the latest Australian film news, reviews, features and interviews, you can visit www.cinemaaustralia.com.au. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and YouTube at Cinema Australia. Cinema Australia.